Join the Food and Drink Federation for the FDF Awards at the Royal Lancaster Hotel, February the 4th, 2021. For more details on this prestigious event, visit fdf.org.uk forward slash events. The FDF Awards, February the 4th, 2021. We look forward to seeing you there. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this fortnightly issues update webinar from the Food and Drink Federation. My name is Tim Rycroft. I'm the COO here at FDF. And over the course of the next hour, myself and my expert colleagues are going to take you through all the important developments in food and drink over the last two weeks. So what have we got for you today? We're going to cover developments in COVID-19, and there have indeed been many, both in England, Wales and Scotland. Uh, and we're going to update you on some of the work we're doing to support members and some of the resources available. That will be Nikki. Uh, we'll hear from David in Scotland and Pete in Wales on uh, some significant developments in the devolved administrations. We're going to hear from Mark Harrison uh, about the changes to the job support scheme uh, that were announced uh, very recently uh, and to some of the wider business support measures as well. James Hawkins uh, will be presenting for the first time today. James is our interim head of corporate affairs covering the maternity leave of Jane Armand. Jane departed yesterday for the excitement of her second child. So uh, welcome to James formally and uh, all the best to Jane. I don't suppose she's listening in, but you never know. Uh, then we'll talk about trade. Uh, we'll have an update on some of the customs developments from Luke and on the new free trade agreement signed with Japan from Dominic. Emma Piercy is back to tell us some more about what's going on around net zero, FDF's activities and the development of a net zero narrative. Uh, we're going to hear back from Mark actually after that just on some news on immigration policy and then we'll be joined by my boss and my friend Ian Wright, Chief Executive of FDF, uh, who will be here to offer us some general observations and to answer your questions. Uh, let's get started. So our last webinar was on a Wednesday the 14th of October, which was the day that new Tier 3 regulations came into force in Liverpool City Region and Lancashire. following day, Thursday the 15th, Italy, uh, where they've seen a significant spike. Uh, in cases, as you will know, and indeed some unrest in some of the northern cities today reported as a result of the uh, restrictions that have been put in place. But Italy was removed from the quarantine exemption list. Friday the 16th, uh, the controversial ban on travel into Wales from English COVID-19 hotspots came into force. And on Tuesday the 20th, uh, we had the news that Heathrow Airport would offer a rapid turnaround test for people travelling to Italy and Hong Kong. People could pay £80 for a test before travelling. We also had the sad news of 241 COVID-19 deaths recorded that day, which was the highest number for really quite some time. On the 22nd of October, we had the Chancellor's statement of additional support for jobs and workers affected by the COVID-19 restrictions. The following day, Friday the 23rd, Wales entered what is described as a firebreak lockdown, uh, just over two weeks until Monday the 9th of November. And Greater Manchester, after a very public tussle, uh, was moved into Tier 3 against its will, or at least uh, without agreement from local council and uh, city region leaders. Uh, we had the announcement of a new five-tier system uh, in Scotland, which David Thompson will tell you a little bit more about. And then on Saturday, we had the news that South Yorkshire would be entering tier three. Uh, the Sunday Telegraph suggested that the self-isolation period of 14 days for those who'd come into close contact with somebody who tested positive could be cut to as little as seven days. Um, and we also had the announcement from Boots 
that it would make available in its stores a COVID-19 test that will produce results in 12 minutes at a cost of £120 a time. So um, lots going on, particularly about different regional and uh, national restrictions. And to say a bit more about that, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Nikki Hunt. So yes, the ever-moving feast that is local restrictions continues. And uh, if you've been watching the news over the last 24 hours, it's uh, changed again. Um, so areas in Tier 3, currently the highest tier in England, although there is speculation that a Tier 4 might be added. Um, currently, Greater Manchester, Lancashire, Liverpool City and South Yorkshire and yesterday, uh, Warrington was added, um, effective from today, and Nottingham and parts of um, Nottingham uh, will be effective from just after midnight on Thursday going into three, Tier 3 there. You can see a link there if you want to keep up to date with uh, which region is, is moving into what. I won't uh, elaborate too much on the Tier 2 restrictions because there is too many of them, but significantly for the South, that includes London and Essex. So you can check your local area there for guidance of uh, both the alert levels and also the restrictions that apply through the government website. And that's being constantly updated as they uh, they move areas into different tiers of lockdown um, and link there for also what you can and can't do. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's having some difficulty with keeping up with the rules of exactly what you can't do in, in each area. So if you need to know that, there's a very helpful link from gov.uk, which uh, updates automatically. So for anything on a website, the document will update as soon as the government makes any changes to that. Some useful links just to keep you up to date with some of the things that are changing on a fairly regular basis. The NHS Test and Trace Workplace guidance is, is up there and also some guidance have been published in exactly how Test and Trace system works. Um, and a couple of things just to draw your attention to. Um, on the Test and Trace Workplace guidance, that's been updated in the last 24 hours. And if you've uh, kept up to speed with that, you'll notice that there's some actually some obligations there for employers which have been updated. Um, one thing to be aware of is that it now includes a legal requirement for employers to be really on top of which of their employees are self-isolating. And there is actually a fine that can be imposed for any employer that allows knowingly an employee who's been told to self-isolate to come into work. So that's something to keep up to speed on. In, uh, in that case, the uh, fines start from around about £1,000. Um, there's also a link there for QR code generators for the workplace, probably most useful for those of you that need to display them in the workplace canteens. And also something to keep up to speed on is the working safely guidance there for factories, plants and warehouses. It doesn't change very often, but it's worth keeping a pace of uh, any developments there. And also on the FDF's own website area, um, there's a COVID-19 specific member area where we include all of the guidance for England, Scotland and for Wales as well. So if you haven't had a look at that recently, it's worth uh, taking a quick look to see if anything's changed. Something that you may have seen a note about over the past couple of weeks is a scheme that we've been aiming to put into place around uh, COVID-19 antigen testing. Some of you have reported that you've had difficulties with accessing the NHS test. We've managed to negotiate an uh, arrangement with Bupa, who are our own healthcare provider, to be able to source tests from them on behalf of our member companies. It will be a quite simple process, which is going to be administered by my colleague, uh, our HR uh, manager, uh, Danielle Price. Um, it will be uh, open to members to arrange any antigen testing through us that can either be sent directly to the employee themselves and the process is administered from Bupa from there, or we can buy some bulk tests on behalf of the company, which are then delivered to a central point within your organisation. 
The tests will cost £95 each. Uh, as I said, you can order through us and the results will go directly to the employee, not the employer, in around about three to five day process. If you're ordering through FDF, please be assured that we will be storing all of the data for that securely. And if you want any more information about that, please contact Danielle uh, via the uh, specific email box that we now have for that, which is covidtesting at fdf.org.uk. Just a couple of things before we go on to David that I just want to uh, mention briefly. You may have noticed that the test and trace support system is now in place for people on low incomes who have been ordered to self-isolate. Um, so that's now available, particularly for those on things like universal credit, working tax credit, housing benefit, they can get that on top of the statutory sick pay. There's also some um, discretionary payments available for people that are ordered to self-isolate who aren't on any of those income-related um, benefits. And at the moment, the local authorities are working out for the mechanisms of how people can apply for that. So further details will be to follow. And just one final quick reminder from us, we are issuing the FDF COVID-19 member survey later today. I appreciate you're probably a bit surveyed out at the moment, but it would be great if you could complete that because the Food Chain Emergency Liaison Group are using the results of some of our surveys to um, base their winter contingency planning on. So we really want to try and get a very accurate picture as much as we possibly can from our members uh, for next week for them. And that's it from me. And now over to David. Just a quick note from Scotland on some of the developments on COVID. So uh, the first is obviously the new Scottish five-tier restrictions that were published late last week, and they are going to be debated in the Scottish Parliament. Uh, that's a much better process than we have had uh, in the more recent future, uh, recent past, um, uh, and therefore it's allowed us to have discussions with uh, Fergus Ewing, the Minister in Scotland, and to pick up some of the key points of that. Um, while there are five tiers, um, they actually go from level zero uh, to level four. Um, and at the moment, I know that the government uh, ministers are talking to the councils who uh, may potentially, who will be affected and, and telling them what level they're likely to be put in. Some key points, I think. Uh, firstly, uh, it will be a local authority area in Scotland, uh, uh, like in England, that's put into restrictions rather than uh, what has currently been a health board. So local authorities, there are fewer fewer health boards and local authorities. So that means there's uh, likely to be more nuance as we go forward. Uh, the secondly thing is that it will be reviewed weekly, but it is unlikely that places are likely to move in and out of tiers weekly. Uh, more likely there'll be two to four week sets of restrictions. All of that uh, is helpful, as is the fact that manufacturing uh, will be allowed on all of the five levels. Uh, which is something obviously that FDF has been pushing for throughout this crisis. Um, more interesting for members is the hospitality side of things, where um, Scotland, if you recall, got itself in a huge guddle um, about the definition of what a restaurant and what a cafe was and the selling of alcohol or otherwise. The new restrictions seem, seem to have uh, a better way of dealing with that, uh, restricting alcohol but still allowing places to be open to serve food. So hopefully that means our hospitality colleagues will get uh, a bit of relief uh, as we move forward into these new five tiers, uh, but that remains to be seen, not just what's actually decided by Parliament over the next couple of days, but actually how it's implemented at local level. Lastly, there is some funding available for affected businesses, which is that uh, we have asked that supply chain businesses who are affected do get consideration, and that seems to be 
uh, in, in what they are proposing, uh, but we really need to work out how that works for supply chain businesses, especially supply chain businesses who are not in a directly affected area. So some good news there, but we need to see how things develop. So that's it from Scotland. I'm going to pass over to my colleague Pete, who will talk about Wales. Uh, the first thing is the Economic Resilience Fund that we mentioned at the last webinar has actually been doubled to now £300 million and the applications are set, were set to open on Monday, although there were some challenges with the process. However, they're due to last until the end of March. If you've been any funding before, you can apply, but it's very much first-come, first-served basis. And if you remember on the last uh, webinar, there was different ranges depending on the number of employees. If you want to reach out to me, I'm happy to provide the details of that. However, one additional change is the hospitality businesses will not have to make any contribution to receive the funding. Obviously, it's been mentioned already, the big news is the fire break. Uh, fascinating that the Welsh Government took the time to issue guidance on 36 different languages from Afrikaans to Zulu in terms of, of the details. However, what's really come out of that is the essential versus non-essential retail. Uh, the latest stage is that Welsh Government is, is continuing with its process of, of, of making sure that larger retailers should have limited amount of sales. However, that's continuing to be challenged and we'll see how that evolves. Travel, our, our industry is not affected in terms of essential. Although one subtle nuance just to be aware of is, is next week, if your children are 9 to 11, they have to stay at home unless they have to go to exams. Welsh Government asked for financial support from the UK Government, uh, did not get that support, so have set up their own discretionary fund for workers of businesses forced to close hardship grants. The actual term is the lockdown business fund that has been just been announced as of today. Shifting to EU readiness, uh, FDF Cymru are actually joining in a, in a collaboration to communicate to industry with DEFRA, Secretary of State for Wales, Food and Drink Industry Wales Board, uh, to make sure that we get as much communication out to industry as we head towards the transition period or the end of the transition period. If anyone has any specific challenges, please do not hesitate to let me know because I'm extremely keen to make sure that communication is as clear as possible and really useful. And with that, I will hand over to my colleague Mark, who's going to take us to the job support scheme. So the job support scheme is now divided into job support scheme open and job support scheme closed, whether your business is open or closed due to COVID restrictions. So job support scheme scoping, jobs, excuse me, job support scheme open uh, is available uh, to any business. Um, it's regardless of whether they're in a tier one, tier two, tier three, which nation in the UK and any business can use the JSS open scheme. And it's in a effect, although it is a different scheme, the effect of it is very similar to the current furlough scheme, which is due to expire at the end of the month. So it's any SME is eligible and any large company that can demonstrate a lost turnover due to COVID-19. Whereas uh, previously, um, the requirement was going to be for an employee to work 33% of their hours. This is now down to 20% of their hours. And crucially, um, an employer is only required to contribute 5% of the outstanding unpaid hours with the government contributing essentially 62% of uh, the unpaid hours. So whereas before unpaid hours were a three-way split between employer, government and unpaid, um, the government is now uh, making up the bulk of the payment for those hours. So if an employer was working 20% of their normal hours, uh, the employer would be able to top up above the wages, um, they would need to top up 4% and then the government would top up 49% with 27% of uh, normal wages being unpaid. Job support scheme closed um, is what was formerly referred to as job support scheme expansion. Um, but other than that, hasn't really changed. Essentially, the government will pay two thirds of the wages 
of those in any business closed due to lockdowns imposed by the UK with devolved government. And uh, interestingly, it includes those that are restricted to takeaway or serving outdoors only. It does not include, however, those closed due to a specific on-site outbreak of COVID at that site. Um, in terms of funding, it will fund up to £20,083 per month, which is the equivalent to funding two-thirds of the wages of someone on a £37,500 salary. So just to flesh out a bit more on JSS Open, where there is a bit more variability in how it works. So the more hours worked, uh, the lower the employer and government contributions are, and the greater the proportion uh, of their wage, their normal wages an employee will receive. Different to how the scheme was envisaged before, there's less benefit to the employer in terms of allowing more hours to reduce uh, the additional contribution. As you can see, um, increasing those 10% increments does very little to the amount employer is required to top up and therefore should make it easier to retain workers uh, on shorter working hours if that is helpful. Uh, again, the contribution will be capped at £1,542 per month per employee. In terms of the eligibility criteria and the process, uh, you must reach a written agreement with employees or a collective agreement with the trade union where applicable, and this needs to be kept for five years. Um, similar to the more recent versions of the furlough scheme, the employer payment of national insurance and pension contributions continues, as well as the apprenticeship levy and student loan payments where applicable. In terms of JSS Open, uh, you need to keep a record of how many hours employees work and number of usual hours they are not working. The JSS closed um, must be an employee's primary workplace, must be a premises legally required uh, to close. Although if you have a business that has um, some, some premises that are legally required to close and others remain open, you can use both schemes for different employers at different sites. The claims portal will open on the 8th of December and you'll claim in arrears for the previous month. So um, as well as that support, the Chancellor announced grants for Tier 2 and Tier 3 uh, area businesses. So th the new um, grant here is the Tier 2 grant. So this is additional funding that has been sent to local authorities uh, in high alert Tier 2 areas um, for them to provide business grant schemes. So um, the, the way this is, uh, the, the way the amount of money a local authority receives is on the basis of how many hospitality, uh, B&B, &B, uh, et cetera, premises that will be shut in tier three are present in each local authority. Uh, and these businesses will, the, the local authority, sorry, will receive 70% of the grant those uh, businesses would get if they were in tier three. So um, just to unpack this a bit, uh, tier three is um, quite clear cut. It's, it's grants for those that are forced to close by COVID restrictions imposed by the uh, UK government on tier three areas. The tier two uh, monthly grant, the actual eligibility is decided by the local authorities, but it's likely to be based on those who would be locked down if the local authority was pushed into tier three. The amounts on the table here are indicative of the funding the local authority will receive from the treasury. Um, it's likely most local authorities will follow these, but it is up to them to decide. Point worth uh, noting is that four areas that have been locked down for longer and that have been local lockdown in ways that predate the tier system, the funding the local authority receives will be backdated to when the local lockdown began. So for businesses that have had restrictions for a long time but have been, haven't been locked down in tier three, that funding will be backdated. So uh, a lot of the details are still being worked out on this and the JSS. We're expecting um, further details expected by the end of October, um, but also the latest uh, guidance is, is linked in the slides there. 
and uh, with that, I'll pass on to our next contributor. Okay, so events kicked off on the 15th of October, and you recall that prior to the European summit uh, taking place, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson had previously said that if there's no UK and EU agreement in place, then the, then the UK may well walk away from the negotiations altogether. And then the UK would uh, go on to a no-deal Australian or WTO arrangement, and um, pick a descriptor according to taste. With no uh, agreement in place, David Frost, the UK chief negotiator, described himself disappointed. And in response, EU leaders, uh, in response to EU leaders, switching all the focus onto the UK and blaming them for not uh, shifting their negotiating positions. Uh, and the main sticking points were, again, fisheries, state aid and governance, so no change there. It was also widely reported that the word in intensive, inscription of ongoing, possible ongoing talks, was removed from the final communique in how EU leaders wish to uh, talks to continue, and signifying that we're very much still far from the final stages of, of concluding any agreement. But it's interesting to note that the European Commissioner, President Ursula von der Leyen, did tweet out that she wanted intensive talks to continue. And this is very much seen as a way of trying to de-escalate or de-intensify, if you will, the furor that was now playing out due to the semantics issue. And there's many media commentators reporting that Brussels insiders felt that people at the summit in the communique got the tone a bit wrong. The following day, on the 16th of October, Boris Johnson stated in the TV interview that there would be uh, no more trade and security talks unless the UK adopted a fundamental change to its approach, as he sought to put pressure on Brussels to give ground in the negotiations. Prime Minister's spokesman also sought to increase the rhetoric when he stated the trade talks are over, the EU effectively ended them yesterday when they said that they didn't want, want to change their negotiating position, but he did stop short of saying that the UK's intention was to walk away decisively. At that stage, with talks the following week still to continue, uh, Lord Frost, the UK's negotiator, told Michelle Barnier in a phone call not to bother coming over unless the, unless the EU changed the bloc's approach. Sunday the 17th, uh, the government messaging began to evolve on the various uh, Sunday interviews um, on, on the morning TV with Michael Gove, Chancellor of Duchy of Lancaster, stating that the door was ajar. He said, uh, it's ajar. We hope the EU will change their position. We're certainly not saying that if they do not change their position, we can't talk to them. And during the Andrew Marr show, he admitted that while we are ready, if required, to, to move without a trade deal, but admitted that it won't be a picnic, in his words. While when he switched channel over to Sky Sophie Ridge on Sunday, he downgraded the chance of any deal to be less than 66%, which he'd previously predicted. And members will want to take their own view on how much of this is theatre and how much of this is, is for real. The start of the week, the 19th of October, saw Michael Gove again meeting with the EU Vice President Mara Sefcovic to discuss the Northern Ireland Protocol. And in a very explicit change of tone from the, from the British side, Gove he blows a praise on the positive working relationship which he had with Sefcovic and uh, talked about the ways that the talks were proceeding on this normally thorniest of issues. Behind the scenes, uh, back channel conversations between Lord Frost and Barnier. Frost very much stressed that what he wanted the EU to public, publicly recognise that it needs to compromise. So just kind of pushing up, ramping up the rhetoric again. Meanwhile, in a slightly odd turn of events, uh, five the five archbishops who sit in the House of Lords jointly wrote to the Financial Times warning that the Internal Markets Bill, which was due to be uh, debated that day, uh, would have enormous moral as well as political and legal consequences. And it was very much seen as an unprecedented attack on the governments for its handling of Brexit. On the 20th of October, 
We now had the uh, infamous, perhaps infamous, uh, Prime Minister and CDL, as they were referring to Michael Gove, Chancellor of Sri Lanka, uh, the call with business leaders. This is where the Prime Minister was urging business to prepare uh, for deal or no deal, but for the end of the transition, if they hadn't done any, any preparations already. And Michael Gove likened the end of the transition period to moving house. In a 21-minute call, also included uh, three planted questions from the CVI, FSB and the Road Hauliers, with the government agreeing to uh, business readiness task force and transition vouchers for small business. The 22nd of October, uh, amid all the controversy over COVID talks with Greater Manchester, which was still ongoing, uh, intensified. Um, both sides agreed to intensify talks, to work constructively and in a spirit of compromise, and which was seen by Downing Street as very much a shift of gears on the EU side. And with the media reporting that talks were progressing, there was a sense of cautious optimism that momentum was building, with the three stumbling blocks, with fisheries still being the most intractable problem. And Downing Street's insided again reported out that it was, it was the position of France that was seen as the main stumbling block, with Macron seen very much as playing to his domestic audience and less putting himself in a, in a position of less able to compromise. And on the same day, the FT reported an interview with the Irish Central Bank Governor Gabriel McLeod that Ireland faced a double whabby, uh, especially if there was no deal combined with the COVID uh, problems that Ireland is facing. The 23rd of October saw the official signing in Tokyo of the new Anglo Japanese trade deal, uh, the first major international trade dividend of the uh, post-Brexit era for the UK. Uh, and this was seen very much to have played its part in unlocking the stalled Brexit talks, because the EU was very, very much looking closely at the level playing field provisions which the UK had, had agreed to with Japan. And this was seen as a baseline by the EU uh, for, for, for them to base uh, ongoing Anglo-European negotiations on, in this contested area. 25th on Sunday, uh, saw the newly intensified talks, uh, which were due to wrap up. Uh, it was announced that these were going to continue until Wednesday uh, before they transferred the next day uh, to Brussels, COVID permitting given the Brussels situation. Talks are going to wrap up. It's likely to be the, towards the end of October, uh, end of November, that any uh, agreement will be, uh, will be declared. And it's quite interesting that it's actually gone quite quiet. The, both sides are briefing out into the media um, every single detail and every single kind of what they think about the other side's negotiating position the whole time. And this perhaps, no news is good news perhaps on that front. Anyway, that's over to Luke and Dominic. Um, I'll just quickly run through some of the key bits uh, we're working on in the trade team and then a summary of our trade uh, update that goes out every week. So on key bits we're working on, we're looking to do some guidance on the border operating model and each phase of it for members. Um, it will probably broadly replicate the Northern Ireland movement infographics we did, but essentially just bringing everything onto one page. But we're quite keen to make them as useful for members and food businesses as possible. So if members have any um, points they want specifically covered or anything that they would find useful to give to their suppliers that might not be so ready, do drop me a line and we can see where we can incorporate that. On Northern Ireland, hopefully you will have all seen a joint letter FDF-led uh, with about 40 other trade associations from across the food and drink supply chain highlighting that we need solutions on Northern Ireland um, quickly. Uh, the current DEFRA proposal is a sort of trusted trader system for the supermarkets and we're uh, very much uh, saying that's not enough. You need to create whole supply chain um, solutions and not just one for about four or five companies. Um, also, uh, announcement might be coming this week publicly that the 
SPS movements going from GB to NI will now be using Traces NT and not IPAS as previously being communicated. So we are still seeing policy changes this late in the day, which is uh, uh, a quite fitting uh, sentence to describe how the preparations for the Northern Ireland Protocol are going. And then lastly, um, we're doing a bit of work on the EU readiness side, so kind of understanding um, what's the state of readiness for EU businesses and what FTF can do to help. So we're speaking to some of our partners, uh, trade associations in the EU, and we're also looking to speak to members with operations in the EU to kind of get an engaging of how they need to get their product out of the EU into the UK. Because whilst the UK might phase its uh, borders in, the EU does not. So you still need to do formalities to get that product out of the EU into the UK. Um, so those are the key uh, points we're working on at the moment and drop me a line if any of them are of interest. Uh, what I'm going to do in this one is, is two parts. Is essentially just a summary of the tra uh, trade update Dominic and I send out every week. That pretty much uh, puts all of our work into uh, one circular to help uh, slow the email traffic down. We're all, we're all suffering from at the moment. Um, so it's normally gets it out, sent out about every Thursday, Friday. If you want to get... Um, uploaded to it or uh, on the contact list to drop me a note. But I mean, this week, the key points uh, were very much around the DEFRA have announced how they'll phase in IPAFs. Um, so for non-EU movements, it will come mostly in from December time, so it's about mid-December. And for the EU movements, it'll mostly be April um, and it'll be, it'll be February for plant and plant products. Uh, there was also an announcement that the UK government is has recognised the EU as equivalent in the organics uh, sphere. Um, and they've also published some uh, guidance around how you import products. Now, it's important to note that that does not cover exports to the EU of organic products or how you move that into Northern Ireland. Uh, we're still seeking clarity on that one. There also is a new EU website called Access to Markets, which replaces the market access database uh, that the EU does, but what essentially, uh, there's some very good tools on there that help you understand if your products are rules of origin require uh, compliant for certain deals and kind of any barriers they may face on a commodity uh, code basis. Uh, there's also the, you can now do a demo of the Checker HGV is ready to cross the border service. There's a link into the, in the trade updates so you can do that so you can see if you can uh, get your can access permit or your permit come 1st of January and have a practice run of that. And there's also some data around, um, details around how they will manage traffic uh, around the short straits. Uh, the government has responded to its Operation Brock consultation that effectively sets out how they're going to manage traffic come day one. Uh, and then lastly, this is just a summary of the border industry day, the border protocol and delivery group held last week that had a number of breakout sessions. I think key points from this one was in response to an FDF question, the Chancellor for Duxu Lancaster, Michael Gove, said that there will not be any period of adjustment in the event of a deal. So the only easements we're getting at the moment is from the public government line is the border operating model and some easements around placing a good on the GB market for labelling purposes. But um, within, we do have detailed notes of each session. So if any one of those is of interest, do drop me a line and we'll share them. Um, but I think key points from two of them was on the Traders Port Service, the Northern Ireland one, um, I think that they have dramatically scaled back the ambition of the, what this service is going to do. So it'll be a very basic um, service where you'll effectively be able to submit your customs declaration. It won't do any sort of personalised service for traders moving goods across GB to NI. Uh, there will be some guidance pieces they'll do, such as webinars uh, and the like. But if you're expecting any more than that, you will be disappointed. 
um, and they are expecting to publish what information you'll need to put on your customs declaration when you're moving it from GB to NI around mid-November. So that'll be stuff like um, what we're expecting to be like commodity codes, customs value, and all the like that goes on a, a typical customs declaration. And on the border impact center, this is essentially a, a hub within the border and protocol delivery group that will effectively monitor the live data um, at ports after the 1st of January so they can see where the snarl-ups are, where the delays, what the causes are and what levers government can pull to help manage those delays. Done, and I'll now pass over to Dominic. Uh, so James has already touched on the signature of the UK-Japan Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, or SEPA for short, which took place on Friday of last week. Uh, you may have seen pictures in the media of a beaming Liz Truss, International Trade Secretary with a counterpart from Japan, uh, signing the agreement, which was the first new trade deal put in place by the uh, uh, UK so far. Uh, however, in many respects, this deal is not terribly new. Uh, and for many looking at the text of the agreement, they'll see that at all intents and purposes, it largely mirrors that of the EU deal, uh, particularly in the case of tariffs for agri-food and drink. There are no changes whatsoever to the tariffs that have been signed. However, when you scratch beneath the surface, there is actually some more interesting detail. Uh, I've been reading through all of the separate chapters of the agreement, trying to uh, work out exactly what it all means, and we'll be sharing a note shortly with uh, members on this. Uh, but one of the key ones on tariffs that's worth noting is where tariffs are phased in over a period of time. The UK joins at the same point in the process that the EU is at, so UK exporters will not be set back to day one uh, on, on those phased-in tariffs. Uh, a pleasing aspect of the release has been the very high focus on agriculture, food and drink in uh, the EU's, uh, sorry, the UK's publications. Uh, if you look at the short explainer document published by the government, there are a number of case studies by food and drink businesses. And in the impact assessment, they note that processed foods and agriculture are two of the three biggest gaming sectors expected from the deal. One of the bits that is worth noting is that uh, for the EU's 25 TRQs that are in place, uh, there are some significant changes. So 15 of those EU TRQs are no longer accessible to UK businesses, uh, and those include a number of lines that the UK has never accessed anyway, including udon noodles, uh, but there are 10 TRQs that remain in place uh, where the UK will have access to any unused EU quota from the previous year. Uh, there was also welcome news that UK organics will continue to be recognised until the end of January 2022 as part of this agreement and that Japan is preparing to come over to the UK to undertake uh, an audit of the UK's organic system so that they can put in place longer-term recognition of UK organics. The key changes uh, that I would highlight for food and drink are really around rules of origin, and there is welcome news that extended accumulation has been agreed. This allows EU uh, originating uh, ingredients to continue to be used in UK manufactured products, uh, uh, and those products will still count as UK originating. Uh, added to that, and something that hadn't been uh, mentioned before uh, publication of the full texts last Friday, is that processing that takes place in the EU can also count towards UK uh, originating content as well. 
Uh, we also see in a number of chapters that there are improvements on the product-specific rules of origin that were agreed previously by the EU. So uh, for baked goods uh, and biscuits, manufacturers will have greater flexibility about the sourcing of raw materials used in the product. Uh, and the same is true for pet food as well. Finally, on geographical indications, seven UK products that were recognised in the EU deal will continue to be recognised by Japan. And DIT has tweeted this morning to confirm that they will begin the process of ensuring recognition for around a further 70 UK products in January next year. So on the second point I want to raise today, which is around the ongoing EU-US trade disputes linked to illegal subsidies provided to Airbus and Boeing. We have seen yesterday that the EU has been given the green light to impose uh, retaliatory tariffs of just shy of $4 billion on US uh, or imports from the US. This poses some real concerns for us because the EU's preliminary list published in April 2019 uh, includes a number of really essential uh, food and drink products that we know members have a keen interest in. Uh, and while the uh, EU side is currently deliberating on the final list that they intend to impose, there is uh, a significant risk that a lot of these products could face a 25% tariff as and when the EU chooses to apply uh, their retaliatory tariffs. We understand those discussions are ongoing and there are uh, some varying views between EU member states on whether they should or shouldn't put in place these tariffs prior to the US elections. Uh, and we've also heard from the US government that uh, they could potentially move to impose the full value of their Airbus countermeasures, which are currently not being applied. So uh, there is a real concern that EU action could escalate the ongoing problems that we already face for UK exports of cheese and whiskey uh, to the United States. Uh, um, FTF is continuing to speak with DIT on this uh, and encouraging them to take uh, a sensible approach uh, to ensure that whether or not the EU can broker uh, a deal with the US, that the UK should be in a good position to do this in January of next year. We're, we're also speaking with our EU counterparts on these measures and uh, Food Drink Europe with a, a group of other associations put out uh, a very useful statement to the European Commission uh, in the last week or so, encouraging uh, de-escalation as well. Uh, so I think that concludes my section. Just to announce that the new immigration rules were published on the 27th of October, which have largely stuck to uh, what we were already wearing of in guidance that, and policy papers. However, one thing to note is that the government are not introducing the max shortage occupations recommendations from the 1st of January. Uh, they are going to wait and see uh, how COVID-19 the labour market responds to the change in economic circumstances we're expecting to see. Um, so in short, some of the roles that we had thought would benefit from a lower salary threshold uh, from the 1st of January, such as engineers, butchers and some other roles, uh, will not uh, benefit uh, from that from the 1st of January and may not be added to the list, uh, depending on how uh, the labour market develops um, um, if anyone would like further information on that, please do contact me and I'll now hand over to Emma. I just wanted 
to to raise in profile some of the um, upcoming publications um, for, from government in particular uh, that relate to, to climate change and net zero. So th this month we may have the energy white paper uh, that that should have come, I think, probably well over a year ago now. It keeps being delayed. We shall see. Um, we will hopefully uh, also get an interim report uh, around uh, the cost of meeting net zero. These two publications were originally timed uh, to to be with the budget, which you know is is not 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 happening now, um, not in the same way anyway. So we shall see uh, whether uh, these two publications happen this month. But we do have confirmed um, the Climate Change Committee's uh, publication on the sixth carbon budget on the 9th of December. This will include. A, uh, for, for a number of industrial sectors, including for food and drink, a uh, pathway uh, to net zero in 2050. So it's, it's really quite um, an important document in terms of setting uh, the scene for again the what we're going to be what's going to be coming next year. And in the spring, we shall see the industrial decarbonisation strategy. So going into much in, then in much more detail, uh, albeit at a strategic level, on, on how um, sectors will decarbonise to that net zero target by 2050. And then likewise, in spring, um, HM Treasury will uh, report, um, it give the full report on the cost of meeting net zero. It's the interim one, which we'll hopefully see shortly. And then I just wanted to mention in the National Food Strategy Part 2, th this relates. This also relates to climate change and net zero because that they have said that Part 2 will include a focus on uh, the environment and, and climate change. And of course, then this time, roughly this time next year, we will have COP26 in Glasgow. So really, um, all those forthcoming publications come to a point where, you know, how do we support our members and influence um, and respond to these forthcoming publications? And you know, to really develop that that wider sort of holistic uh, narrative on, on what um, net zero means to the sector. What are these these wider implications? What we do know is, of course, that that, that in terms of cost of carbon, this will be embedded, you know, in in the supply chain for all inputs as well as for for on-site emissions. So, you know, cost of production will increase, and and looking at you know other uh, other impacts as well. Uh, I mentioned the national food strategy. So um, earlier, I think back in January this year, we had the Committee of Climate Change report into land use and net zero. And there they mentioned um, the, the the role of, of meat and dairy, for, for example. So this is where the, the, the connections are. So on the back of, of, of these questions, of these forthcoming publications, um, we launched our uh, FDF project to develop the net zero uh, narrative. And we had the webinar launched on the 14th of October. So you can, if you if you weren't able to join us, then you you can join or you can listen in um, to the, the recording there. And um, as part of uh, the research phase of this project, we are currently uh, underway with a survey that is open to all FDF members and all participants in the Food and Drink Climate Change Agreement. And this is this survey is open until um, the end of this Friday. So just wanted to take this opportunity and say, if you haven't um, filled in the, the survey already, then please do, because um, all of your contributions will be so helpful to us um, you know, in being able to, to address some of these questions that I've highlighted and, you know, 
how we can feed into all those um, forthcoming um, publications. And then just to, just to finish, um, and that is that in December, uh, we will have um, a webinar uh, to go through some of the conclusions of the project. And when we have a date for that, I will let you all know when that is. But back, back to you, Tim. Thank you, Emma, and thank you, everyone, for that fantastic tour d'horizon of all the big issues that are going on. So I'm now joined by Ian Wright, our Chief Executive. So we, we have only a few minutes left. Can I just remind everyone that copies of the slides and a recording of the webinar will be available on our website shortly. Um, the, two, the first observation is there is, again, an enormous amount covered in these webinars. What we try to do, and we've, we've researched this with the feedback that you've given us as you've listened to these over the last seven or eight months and before that when we were doing the Brexit webinars. It is the case that we know that people listening to the, our members and others listening to these webinars do appreciate what Tim just described as the tour d'horizon of, uh, of the issues facing us. I appreciate that many of you won't be dealing particularly with climate change issues or particularly with COVID issues or particularly with Brexit issues. But we do hope that you find this useful to understand the sheer waterfront of stuff that we are covering and also to understand that that uh, these we need to be clear that these are issues we know all businesses are facing there's an enormous workload an enormous workload just to get through the day uh, and i don't think the burdens on business have ever been so great uh, and what we're trying to do is explain where we are on some of these key questions and also make it clear to you that there are areas where we can help um, and there are areas where we very much will. The second point and the second and third points are both really to do with feedback. I know many of you fill in our regular surveys and another one going out this week, I hope you will fill that in as quickly as you can. It's immensely helpful to us and incidentally to DEFRA and others with whom we share the information. The second point is specifically to uh, remind you of something that we talked about earlier, which is the fact that we are now providing a service to members of ordering and fulfilling tests, PCR tests provided by Bupa. I'd be very grateful if you are interested in that, if you follow up with Danielle, whose name was on the slide, and you'll be able to access these slides on the FDF website shortly. Uh, we're very keen to provide as much of a service as we can. Over time, we will, I hope, in fact, possibly by the end of November, I think we'll be able to offer not just uh, PCR tests, but also the new tests which are currently being trialled by the government's Project Moonshot uh, team. Uh, these include the famous swab in the gob test. There's quite a lot of people I know, many of you and I would like to swab in the gob, but uh, this is a test which actually helps people. And there are other similar tests um, which also offer endless opportunities for fun including the prick test, which is a finger blood test, and others similar to the current PCR. They will all be cheaper than the current PCR test, I'm sure, because they're going to be produced in mass numbers. And they do offer the opportunity for mass testing at the workplace. So please do stay in touch with us. We hope to be able to offer those certainly before Christmas, and we hope by the end of November. And finally, a question for you, uh, I, and this is off-piste and off-topic, really. But one of the things that the government is looking at through a Bayes consultation is the possibility that for the period of uh, Sundays in December, it would relax the current Sunday trading laws. I've been asked uh, specifically by the Secretary of State my views on that, 
I have views um, as one who was involved in the original push for Sunday trading relaxation way, way back in the late 80s. I, initially in the late 80s, I have very clear views about that, but I'm not sure what our members' views are. So if you have specific company views on the extension of Sunday trading as an emergency provision, uh, temporary provision over the coming months or six weeks, please let me know by email. Very simple note saying we're in favour, we're against, we'll be fine. I'd just be interested uh, to go a bit beyond uh, the pool of opinions I currently have. Tim, do we have any questions? We do have a couple, and we all have a very nice comment from Gary Neald, who says, top work, Team FDF. Thank you. So thank you, Gary. Um, Gary? So the first question uh, relates to what you were just talking about. It's from Jane Staniforth. Uh, Jane asked, uh, you mentioned that you've arranged COVID testing for members. How do you see the industry using this testing moving forward? Do you think companies will test all their staff weekly? Yes, although I think they will be able to. I think that will not be uh, immediate. I think that has to come with the cheaper, more widely available tests. Um, the PCR test isn't suitable for that, I don't think. Uh, at least not in its current form with the speed of result. And it's clear that capacity for the PCR tests, even the private ones, is relatively, the privately financed ones, is relatively limited and clearly not necessarily terribly helpful during outbreaks of the kind, for example. There's there's one I'm speaking from Suffolk today and there's one uh, at a Norfolk Cranswick plant, uh, which is apparently 140 people out of 1,000 infected and one of the difficulties is it takes 48 hours to get the results so it would be much easier if you had had, had the speedy test i think once we have the speedy test it will be a decision that each business can take if it were me i would be testing our workforce as regularly as it was possible to do i think the the, the and this is perhaps not entirely obvious analogy but i think the way in which both rugby union football and cricket have managed to test players very regularly while they're in bubbles uh, to allow games to go ahead has been a really interesting experiment and I think it's one that we may need to proceed with over the next few months. Once we have a vaccine I think this will all become a lot easier. So I think we are talking about solutions in stages. We're, We're now in a stage where we don't have, we have mass testing Government said this morning that they were producing 400,000 tests a day. That's miles more than anybody else in the world. But we would need to get to a million or two million, which is what these new testing technologies allow, uh, before it can make a massive difference to uh, the way in which we behave. I think once you do have that and you're testing a large number of people every week, I think that makes things uh, significantly easier. But that's a stage en route to the vaccine, I think. And I remain relatively optimistic about potential for a vaccine. My understanding is that the vaccine is going to be available before Christmas to NHS workers and will be made available after that to key workers in order. And there's already a discussion going on about where food and drink workers sit in that particular queue. And I hope we'll be able to bring you more news on that by the end of November as well. I hope that answers the question, Tim. We do have some more questions. So Alison Lee Wilson, hello Alison, uh, says, this is one I think for either Mark or Pete or both of you. I run a business in Wales, which includes a shop and cafe, but is primarily manufacturing. Both are closed. Can I claim JSS closed for those staff? JSS closed, yes. You can You can claim JSS closed for 
those in the cafe part of the business uh, that that cannot work because because it has been closed uh, by the Welsh government. And if you have reduced demand in the manufacturing side of the businesses, then you can put people on reduced hours through JSS Open. Uh, question, just following up on that from me, in and maybe Pete will have a view on this as well. Where shops have been shut because they don't carry essential items or where bits of shops have been shut because they don't carry essential items, whatever they are, are those workers, if they can be shown that they work, their work is only with those essential items, are they also subject to the closed by order of the government provisions of the new JSSS? That is one I, I can take away. I think they would probably be, they because it's the um, business, because the business is still open for the parts of the businesses, parts of the business that provide essential goods. Uh, I think they would only be able to claim JSS open, but that is one I can follow up on. Just add one point, Ian, as well. Obviously, the Welsh Government itself put in funding on this lockdown business fund. So it might be that in that situation, you might be able to claim under that. But again, I would follow Mark's lead and say it's better to check. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that I, you might have a store which uh, sounds like Alison's uh, setup includes things, you know, there might be a gift store, for example, associated with the cafe, which is integral to the physical existence of the of it. And I can think of one or two other similar settings where you could imagine that the the, the Welsh Government's rules as drafted would require that bit to close. They're employees of the company, but they're not allowed to work. It would seem logical that they should be, if closed by the diktat of Mr Drakeford, they should be eligible for that kind of relief. But it may be, as you say, Pete, that it comes via the grant rather than the JSSS. We should we should check that out. Leslie Batchelor, uh, who will be well known to many of you as the champion of exports, uh, just left a message saying, I must dash, but it was a really useful call. Thank you. FDF, brilliant. We love that kind of thing. Uh, and a more serious question from Stephen Morgan, uh, possibly for Luke. How would you assess the state of readiness of our friends and colleagues in road haulage for the changes happening on the border at the on the 1st of January? Uh, in road haulage, um, I would say that is a difficult one. I think, you know, what I would encourage members to do is if you are using a logistics provider, ask them what they're expecting to do come 1st of January. So, the element where hauliers typically have to submit their uh, paperwork is the safety and security declarations, um, which is the legal requirement of the carrier of the good. However, most or some uh, hauliers, I would imagine, would be pretty surprised when they have to start submitting documents when they're just providing a transport service. So I would speak to your own logistics providers, ask them what they are expecting to submit themselves and what they're expecting the traders to submit. And if I could just add, I mean, I don't think anybody could have been, uh, possibly only Kate Nichols of um, UK Hospitality has been more prominent on our airwaves than uh, Richard Burnett from the Road Haulage Association. They've been incredibly active. I think there is a limit to what they can do to get their members ready. But I also think there is a really serious question coming this way about, and I know there's a technical term which I've forgotten, I'm afraid, but about the, the availability of or capacity of the industry in the context of return visits, which are return trips, which are not full. And I know this was a big issue at the start of the lockdown where European drivers were coming to the UK uh, full, but were unable to pick up stuff, uh, loads to take back to the EU initially. And that caused them all sorts of problems because their finances are based on being full both ways. 
And I think there are some questions that, that the current opacity on what the arrangements will be for European drive for driver for all businesses uh, in the post 31st of December context. I think there are quite a lot of queries that mean that people can't businesses can't predict whether those return journeys will make their round trip economic. So there are some big questions which need to be answered pretty quickly by the government in order for the road hauliers, whether they be uh, UK or others, to be clear about whether they can operate profitably. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from Elena Norris. Uh, do we now have all the information required for us to amend food labels aligned with post-Brexit requirements, or are there still any outstanding decisions to be made? I'm not competent to answer that question, but I'm pretty sure the answer to the general question about are there still decisions to be made? The answer is yes, I think, particularly in the context of Northern Ireland. But I think we would need to get Alex Turtle, our labelling expert, to offer a view on that, which we can get him to do, and we'll post it on the website, unless colleagues already on the call know the answer. I think you're right. So for placing a product on the GB market, there will be a transition period around the FBO address. If you're going to place it on the EU market, you will need an EU FBO from the 1st of January. If you're placing it on the Northern Ireland market, that's where the question market mark is. We have our assumption around what the likely answer is going to be, but it's unclear from government yet. And every time we go on calls, we that question is asked and the official says it's coming soon. Uh, and our own Helen Monday posts uh, still info required on labels just to confirm that there are indeed some outstanding questions. So those are all the questions we have at the moment. Very good. Well, Tim, I'm uh, I'm grateful to the team for we've had two fantastic audits, and we're very uh, we're very grateful to all of you. As you can see, just down below me, if you're seeing my picture, which some of you might be, just here there is the list of places you can hear. This, uh, again, if you wish to, um, or you can hear all our range of other FDF podcasts. We're really ramping up our podcast production, uh, and uh, we're doing several a week right now. There are some very interesting ones. I recorded one on organics with Alex Smith, the, uh, the chair of our organics group, um, and we ranged far and wide, including Alex's history uh, as a squatter in London in the 1970s, which was absolutely fascinating. Uh, really was an amazing source of social history of, of organic food. And we've got a whole range of others that are uh, learning opportunities there, and they're also very informative uh, on a whole range of topics. So do check out our list of podcasts. As we said, the slides and the recording from this webinar will be available uh, and accessible via the FDF website. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.